0: Another edition of Here's the Pitch, uh, thank, thankfully brought to you by Mass's Restaurants in St. Louis. I appreciate them, and you know I'll be talking about my title sponsor here a lot throughout the show. But today I'm excited to talk to Jeff Perlman, and um, you know Jeff because he's written some of the greatest articles in SI. He's written written some of the uh, some of the best sports books. Hello, Jeff. I don't, I don't know if
1: any of that is actually true. Okay. Oh.
0: I was going to ask, was that a good intro? Did you like that, or do you want me to start over?
1: I feel like it was a little exaggerated, but um, if someone wants to brag about my bio or make it sound better than it is, I'm not
0: really complain that much. So, thank you. Well, I uh, so I, obviously I, I'm a sports fan, so I know of your work of uh, kind of some of the stuff you did in SI. Um, you wrote about uh, you rode with John Rocker on a subway, and it kind of became your claim to fame. Um, and you have a new book out right now. Uh, so let's kind of talk about that to start, and it's about the USFL. I think anybody loves uh, anything about Donald Trump, so you got you got that working for you. But I know that uh, this this is something that you worked on for two years. Um, I was a kid when the US, USFL was out there, so I knew about it. Didn't know exactly the story. Obviously, saw the thirty for thirty. But you uh, you definitely just wanted to dig in. Tell me a little bit about your passion play here for that for that uh, football for a buck is the name of the book. Yeah,
1: well, I was a kid also when USFL was around and I just loved it. And uh, I said this a lot on interviews and I, sometimes I hate repeating myself in different interviews, but it's just it's the genuine truth in Genesis is, I remember being a kid, I grew up in Mayo Pack, New York, and um, my parents would only get Sport Magazine, they wouldn't subscribe to Sports Illustrated because it was expensive and nobody in my house cared about sports except for me. And I would walk to the Mayo Pack Library and I would read SI there. And uh, I remember the issue with Herschel Walker on the cover in the New Jersey General's uniform and said hitting pay dirt. And you open to the inside of the magazine and it's um, it's all the new U.S. helmets, none of which I'd known about yet. I had seen and my mind was just freaking blown, like blown, blown. And um, I just freaking I just fell in love. I really fell in love. Uh, like, uh, I think a lot of people when they ask what what caused your genesis of uh, your love of sports? I think a lot of times we we lie about it or we just make up something because we don't know and, and i think for myself what really did it for me was um were the colors and the afros and the cool names and all the like funky stuff that comes with sports so i just remember seeing Herschel walker on the cover in a new uniform opening up the pages and seeing all the helmets and being like holy crap this is just freaking insane and uh you know i love the usfl i loved it to the day it ended My senior year in high school in 1990, I wrote a 40-page thesis on the downfall of the USFL. Um, I just love the USFL.
0: Yeah, it's funny that you're talking about that. I don't want to change subjects. But if the XFL or one of these other leagues could just get the kids, I mean, it really felt like in 2001, if Vince McMahon didn't overplay his hand, he had He Hate Me. He had that going with him. He had the nicknames. He had kind of the different rules. If you get the kids kind of thinking, wow, that's cool. That's not the NFL. I understand those rules. It seems like uh, you know, that would work, and maybe it'll work again for, for Vince here in 2020. But uh, it, it's an interesting take that you had there that it was just the colors of the, the uniforms.
1: Yeah. Um, I don't know. I just think a lot of times we, we miss why, what brought us to sports at the beginning, and people try to come up with ideas and reasons. And I think sometimes it's as basic as it just looked really, really cool.
0: So, so the USFL, they they really do. I mean, I don't think people can really imagine right now competing with the NFL. Again, I mentioned just one league that's going to try it. There's going to be another one that's going to try it. But this one really did give them a run for their money, and the reason was they got great players. And that's, that's what I've always said is that if the XFL could get A.J. McCarron or could get uh, Trey Mason, just an Alabama running back, just make it SEC minor leagues, you have a league, so this league had Jim Kelly and Herschel Walker, Steve Young, Reggie White, um, and obviously Doug Flutie. I mean, is that, tell me a little bit about just how they competed uh, in the mid-80s to to really kind of give the NFL a run for their money for a little bit to where the NFL had to shut them down.
1: Right, so I disagree with you a little bit where I think if you want to be a new league that lasts three years, go after big-name players, right? Try to take players that the NFL wants you're not going to survive, just like the U.S. of L didn't survive, because you're not going to be able to compete financially, ultimately. And the U.S. Of L, for all the good, spent itself to death. You know, and like, yeah, no, A.J. McCarron is just an NFL backup, um, but he's still an NFL player. And I think if these leagues come along and start trying to steal NFL players, I think it's a recipe for disaster. Um, that said, I do think the idea of taking guys, you know, if you're a team in Birmingham, uh, getting the Alabama guys who didn't make NFL rosters or deciding besides playing the CFL or your league, make you sure they're playing in your league, you know, build fan loyalty so that, um, you know, you can say some kid who went to high school in Tuscaloosa and then went to college at UAB or University of Alabama or whatever, you can be like, you saw them in high school, you saw them in college, now you can watch them play pros. And the other thing I think these leagues needed to do is if you have a quarterback, that guy you got, the quarterback, for Philadelphia, the team in Philly or whatever, who played at the University of Delaware, if he gets signed um, by the Dallas Cowboys, I think these leagues have to celebrate that. Be like, look, you saw him here in our league, and now they're playing in the NFL. The worst thing you can do is try to take on the NFL directly. It just, it's just not realistic in this environment.
0: That's a pretty good point, probably. I, I think I agree with you there. Um, I think, obviously, the the big name of, the, of this league... And now even bigger now that the man is the president of the United States is Donald Trump. So he uh, he purchases a team and then wants to kind of just tell me about his involvement. The fact that I mean, do you basically make him kind of the the reason why the whole thing went away? I mean, what, what's your thoughts on Trump and the USFL? Um, yeah, I think he uh, I think he he was selfish.
1: You know, I, the only reason he got in the USFL was he an NFL team. That was it. He thought he, it would be a gateway to the NFL. So shortly after buying the New Jersey Generals, he met with Pete Rozelle, the NFL commissioner, and um, he told him, you know, he said, "I will um, if you give me an NFL team, I'll throw this league under the bus. And that's basically what he said to the guy. He uh, he never cared about the U.S. NFL. He just sought his way into the NFL, which he wanted to be it. Um, So, you know, I just, I have very little good to say about him as a president, but way before that. As a USFL owner, it was all about selfishness. For him. He never cared about the league. He outspent the other owners in an effort to build up his team so it would be NFL ready and could show the NFL that he had, he was willing to spend the dough. Um, he pushed the move from spring to fall because he thought it would help them in a lawsuit against the NFL. It was all just a scam. The whole thing was a scam. It's really infuriating.
0: He's a scam artist. That's what he does. Uh, yeah, he is. And we're going to talk more about football for a buck uh, here throughout, and uh, you can get that book, I'm sure, everywhere where you get books. Um, but the book that I bought, uh, I believe, was your first one, maybe your second one. It's the Mets book, the 1986 Mets. And it's just a weird thing for me. I'm a Cardinal fan, been a Cardinal fan all my life. The Mets were the team I hated in the 80s, yet I love them for some weird – as a 10-year-old, I still had this – boy, I got to see what they're up to. I like that team. So you wrote this book about the 1986 Mets that really told many stories that I didn't know. Uh, how much fun was it for you to to kind of maybe talk? To, I, I think you, you liked the Mets growing up, right? This was sort of a, oh my God, I'm a fanboy. I get to do this, right? Is that, is that right?
1: Yeah, I would say so. I um, yeah, grew up in New York. 86 World Series was a definitive defining moment in my young sports fandom. Uh, it was my first book ever, you know? And... um so the the sort of ability to um, dive back into a team you grew up watching and start asking the players one by one about their experiences. And that was my first book, and it was really eye-opening uh, sort of acknowledgement, you know, understanding of how awesome it could be that you get to, it's like looking at a newspaper and then diving into the paper. And being able to find out everything that happened and get the stories behind the stories. And the 86 Mets, it was was such, it wasn't my idea. An agent actually came to me, named Susan Reed, with that first idea. And it was such a good idea. Like, it was the perfect idea for a young writer, first book. You know, it was a topic that had a really good chance of selling. It had never been done before. It was a major market. Everything about that was, like, dead on.
0: Uh, that that team, to me, is just one of the—maybe I, I, this is just overstating it. And again, I'm a Cardinal fan. I think it's one of the great sports teams and stories of that century. Uh, Davey Johnson, first day of spring training, says we're winning the World Series. Uh, Gary Carter gets hit in the face in spring training. Uh, Doc Gooden is uh, is doing his thing. Strawberry. You have these storylines. You've got Wally Backman and Len Dykstra and just these personalities. They and they then they just win 108 games and then they almost lose to the Astros. Um, And then they they have to go seven games. I mean, for a great team, they still had to struggle to get through those 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 uh, playoff rounds. But I can't think of a team that had more personality, more stories, more brash. I mean, I think they were kind of beginning the curtain calls. Um, do I? Am I wrong here thinking that, you know, you wrote about the Cowboys in the 90s and other – maybe it's just because this is the teams that I grew up watching. But is it, am I wrong to overstate that, saying this is one of the most unique, crazy, great teams I've ever seen?
1: No, I mean. Well, first of all, it's your observation. <laughs> but second of all, I I would agree. I also it's funny how you're a Cardinals fan, and that does not happen without one of the to me one of the worst trades for the Cardinals in the history of the franchise, which is Keith Hernandez to the Mets for Neil Allen and Rick. owenby which is a horrible trade. Uh, I mean, Hernandez was really, if he wasn't the key, he was one of two or three keys to that team, and a, a real you know they needed a veteran, they needed a guy to walk to the ground and calm people down, they needed a leader. Uh, and he was just perfect. And that team was thing is there's a couple of things. Number one, they went out after games and they would go to this bar in Long Island called Finn McCool's or they go to Rusty Stobbs Bar in Manhattan. And if you were a fan, you'd see these guys out. Like you never see athletes out today. They're not mingling with you. They're either behind a rope or they're in their mansions. Um and the other thing is is there was a stone era when you had kegs in the clubhouse. So after games they'd be sitting around tapping a keg. I mean, it was like just bonding. You know, real bonding. So, um, you know, I just, uh, I just think it's it was such a magical time. You know, really magical.
0: I think my, I think it, because it still goes today. I, I have a real hatred for the Cubs. I, I don't think I even liked those Mets teams, but I liked watching them, and I was, I think I was rooting for them to lose. And and, and I, I have more. It's a weird thing. I have a lot of pleasure sometimes more pleasure out of watching the Cubs lose big games. The Steve Bartman thing was just the greatest thing I'd ever seen. I was just really hoping 2016 Cleveland pulled it out. So I don't mind the Cubs kind of getting to the playoffs or the Mets back in the 80s, but I, if it wasn't going to be the Cardinals, I wanted to see how they were going to lose it. I think that's where I come in down that, down that ride. Yeah. I but, understand. I get it. I get it. But you, So you detail some great stories, and um, I think a lot of people heard about the flight from hell from Houston. If you don't mind kind of just giving me some of the details you got to hear about, because it is definitely detailed in the book, but after they win Game 7 in Houston, they fly back to New York, and it is a shit show. Is basically the only way to really describe it, and just tell me about how fun that was to kind of gr- get these stories out of these guys. Well,
1: first of all, I just to be totally honest, I wrote that book in... 2003 so you're talking about 15 years from me so I can't promise great great but the, the thing I remember the most you know so basically um, they beat the Astros to go to the World Series and Frank Cashin the, the general manager the late Frank Cashin never allowed wives to fly with the team but he allowed them to fly in this flight back and the alcohol was flowing the drugs were flowing there's a youth food fight on the plane um, Ron Darling the pitcher now the Mets announcer he's eating this very and it's very sort of Vivid and kind of nasty image of the wives who couldn't handle their alcohol, vomiting on their patent leather outfits, you know, and seats being pushed back and someone snorting Coke in the bathroom and the door flying open. Uh, it was just this wild, crazy thing. And and, and um, a couple of days later, davy Johnson, well, Frank Cash was livid how much damage was done to the plane. And the, the airline gave him a bill, I don't remember what it was for, $50,000 or whatever for the damage done to the plane. And Davey Johnson stood before his team and he said, you know, guys, this is really embarrassing. We should all be ashamed of ourselves. And the Mets want us to all pay for this. And then he tears up the bill and he says, but you know what, to hell with them. We're about to win them a World Series so they can pay this, you know, blah, blah, blah. And everyone goes crazy. So it's great. It was, yeah, I love that
0: stuff. Yeah. And that, I think once you get them further away from the, the, the years, they, they get more open, you know, and that's probably why you got some great stories. I, again, I could talk about the 86 Mets forever, but then you move on to the 90s Cowboys. You write a book called uh, Boys Will Be Boys. And um, so I haven't seen this one, but again, I, I did. I did love the 90s Cowboys I don't know why I guess I you know I had some sort of sick thing with the dynasties but uh, tell me a little bit about writing that book and hearing some of the stories from uh, all those I mean you got again the White House Michael Irvin uh, just so many crazy things that happened in the 90s with the Cowboys yeah well they
1: were uh, they were fantastic and um uh, I'll tell you an interesting story from that again after a while the books start to feel longer and longer ago because they are longer and longer ago but um I couldn't get Michael Irvin to talk. I couldn't get him to talk. And that that was the year he was getting inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. So I got a press credential for the Hall of Fame. And um, it was me and a friend of mine named Michael Lewis, not Moneyball Michael Lewis, but a guy named Michael Lewis. We flew out to Canton to report it. And I got a little Irvin here and there. And then um, all that, when you're inducted, you have parties in tents on the grounds of the Hall of Fame. And um, I snuck into Michael Irvin's Hall of Fame party. I literally snuck under the tent got in, didn't have a hand stamp, so I was avoiding the security guards all night. The Pointer Sisters are singing. And I was just interviewing people and eating M&Ms. And it was like Jerry Jones was there. And my my great moment, like my great moment and one of the best moments of my life reporting-wise is, you know, a lot of the book is Michael Irvin doing really inappropriate things uh, with women, with drugs. And the final scene of that night that I saw was Michael Irvin dancing with his wife to a slow song. You know, he's now in his early 40s and slowed down a lot. And he was a TV host and blah, blah, blah. And it was just like this great culmination, this great scene of him sort of having grown up, you know, this, you know, kind of football delinquent and maturing and having this moment.
0: What's it like to just get these people to open up? Because it, it is a sort of, to me, what sounds like a dream job. Obviously, it's hard. I mean, interviewing 50, 60 people, trying to get the right people, trying to get the good stories out of people. Um, you know, on, on books like the '86 Mets or the Cowboys or, or Roger Clemens. I mean, you know, it, it, tell me a little bit about that process. Just how hard it is to kind of put this together to get people to give you the information that you want for a good book.
1: Um, it's a joyful grind. You know, it's hard. I mean, I'm working on a book now, and I'm just every day I'm calling people, calling people, calling people, leaving messages, calling again, calling again. Sorry to bother you. I hate to bother you. I really hate to bother you. But you know, texting, Hey, if you have a second. Um, it's a lot of knocking on doors. It's a lot of, like I'm in Arizona today for a book event and there's a guy I need to find a basketball player and he hasn't returned my calls. Tomorrow morning I'm going to knock on his door. He might get pissed at me. I have no idea. Like, but it's also part of the fun of it, you know? And I feel like a lot of people in this gig, they develop very good investigative skills. I mean, some of the best, I feel like you could take a team of us and we'd be really good investigators, um, for crime, for whatever, because you learn to sort of, you know, I've—I've, I've, to be honest, I've snuck under a lot of tents. I've gone past security guards. I've knocked on doors. You'd be crazy to knock on. I've, you know, walked in backyards, not knowing where right to way to be. You do all that stuff, and it's—it's it's an electric, terrifying sort of thing, but the payoff is tremendous. You know, and it's like—I would say, like, I went to the University of Delaware when I graduated. My roommates were still very good friends of mine. One went on to work at a bank. Another one went on to work at a, as a lawyer. They both had the same jobs for the last 20-something years. Um, Every day they go to the office and they do relatively the same thing. And my job is never the same. I mean, there's a grind to it, no doubt about it. But, like, finding people or tracking people down, people who you're genuinely interested in talking to is a thrill. It's just a thrill. And you, you get rejected a lot, but that's okay. You know, everything, you know, life is filled with rejections but um, I don't know it's, it's really, fun. It really is
0: fun it's like doing this podcast I get rejected all the time and then I just, just decide not to do it anymore so I appreciate you you no, just don't said don't
1: give up man don't give up <laughs> and also the other thing is um, I really mean this like everyone has a story like you don't need Michael Irvin and you don't need Dwight Gooden for great stories everyone has a story to tell everyone has a life path so if you're not getting the guests you want we'll find someone a little lower on the totem pole of social status and get them because it doesn't mean they don't have good stories to tell. And that's really what it's all about. is getting the good stories.
0: Well, and that's, it kind of takes me to the Barry Bonds book. So you wrote one called Love Me, Hate Me. And this came out, uh, as I read about, you know, you, you pub- publishing this about what, a month, two months before Game of Shadows comes out. So no, that, no,
1: no, 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 no. It came out two weeks after Game of Shadows.
0: Oh, okay. So
1: yeah, terrible timing.
0: Um, so you write basically a, a, a look at Barry Bonds. And it, this is one of those things, right? He didn't talk to you, but you get to talk to everybody else
1: yeah he. um i'd interviewed him i'd interviewed bonds uh, well, not that long earlier for sports Illustrated story and then i went up to him when i was working on this book and said as i said you talk to me and he made it clear he would not he wasn't a complete ass about it but he, he wouldn't talk but that's cool like that's fine he doesn't owe it to me i would say nobody owes it to me to talk so i interview everyone i found his you know boy scout den leader and i found the woman who sold him his house and you find friends of his wife and you you just compile this sort of thing. I, it's not that important in a weird way to talk to the main characters because A, they've talked a million times and B, they're gonna tell you sort of their side of how they see themselves. What's oftentimes the most fascinating is how other people see them. That was a case with Bones, definitely.
0: Yeah, and w- tell me, what did you what did you glean from all your interviews about him? It, it wasn't real positive. Most people, right? From what I what I saw. No, he's he's an awful. awful I don't know if he still is, but he was an awful human
1: being. Like a truly awful human being. He treated people like absolute crap and didn't care about people. He was terrible. So it was it was an exhausting effort to find people to say good things about him. And one of the criticisms would be, well it's really a biased book because there's not much positive about him. And I always say, well, there's not much positive about him because he's, he's not a nice human being. He's not a good guy. So it was very hard to find sort of positive Barry Bond takes because nobody has one because they all think he's, he's a jackass. I keep... really, It's like a life... He reminds me so much of Donald Trump, it's not even funny. His whole key to life was walking like he belongs, walking over people, walking through people. That is what he did time and time again. And he always would get what he wants. I mean, I've never seen a guy... He was sets an asshole to people, but he had you know a locker. He had a massage chair by his locker. He had two uh, private PR people. He had a masseuse. He had a videographer. All in the Giants clubhouse. I mean, there was a remarkable. I, if you walk like you own a place, it can take you far. You won't necessarily be a nice person, but but it'll take you far. That's what happened with Bonds.
0: I was gonna say. I mean, it's just weird because it never seemed like he was ever a good guy. Uh, his dad was sort of prickly, according to uh, you know people you hear about. It wasn't as bad as as Barry, but it's just a weird way to go through life, right? I mean, yes. He I saw people
1: like shit over and over. Yeah. A and I would I... never want to be him. I would never want the success he had. The trade-off being you have to treat people like that and be thought of like that.
0: So. Weirdest thing I saw: I was at the 2000 All-Star Game in Atlanta, and Barry was was playing in it, and his son was there. And somebody closed the door, and his son, I think at that point, was 8, nine, ten years old, something like that. And I'll never yeah. I'll never forget it. He goes, they better not be closing that door on me. Like, yeah. a 10-year-old said that. And I said, oh, my God, we've got Barry Jr. I mean, it just was... And actually, his son, I did
1: a and a with his son a few years ago. He's actually a really nice guy. He has very little. I mean, Barry didn't really raise him, reason, you know? Uh, and the one thing I will say about writing books, like, part of the whole thing... Finding out, okay, why is this guy this way? Like that's part of the whole puzzle of it all. Why is this guy this way? What happened in his life that made him to be this way? And the truth of the matter is, his dad was not very good. His uh, quote unquote godfather Willie Mays
0: not a nice guy. So, like, if you raise a kid like 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 he's being raised by wolves, this is what you are going to get. You did. Uh, it seems like that's sort of your your theme yes. here. Because then you you did you kind of obviously you got to write a book about someone who's interesting, Roger Clemens. So you you picked the other guy. And that book's called The Rocket That Fell to Earth. Um, another guy who doesn't seem like he's real friendly, <laughs> honestly. Is that kind of what yeah. you glean from that project?
1: Um, that was my least enjoyable project because the thing is, like, Bonds, for all his flaws, like, he's, he's a relatively intelligent man, and Roger Clemens is not. And if someone lacks sort of introspection, uh, can't look inside himself, it's very hard to sort of... Uh, find a lot there. So of all the books I've written, *Clemens* was the least
0: enjoyable. Again, so I, and I appreciate you taking some time. Just a couple more minutes here, and I'm going to let you go. So thank you. I, uh, so I look at your one of your bios, and there's a story about Rodney Dangerfield uh, naked and a bong. So I have to ask. Rodney, Rodney Dangerfield naked and a bong. There's three, three things there. That, Tell me about all three. <laughs> I
1: love that. So uh, I was writing for Newsday. I've been there with the Sports Illustrated for a long time. Last to write features at Newsday. I'd grown tired of sports and I wanted to try something different. So this, basically my job was to walk around New York City and find people to profile. And my editor called me one day and said, you know, Rodney Dangerfield is in town promoting his new, he had an autobiography on, I think, and do you want to go interview him? I said, sure, definitely. And he was staying at the Omni in Manhattan and uh, I went up to the penthouse to meet him. The hotel door, I think, was cracked open. I knocked, he said, come in. I walk in, He's wearing a robe, but it's all sort of wide open, so I see his junk hanging all out, and um, he's smoking a, up from a bong. And I interviewed him while he was basically naked and smoking from a bong. And uh, he was like, a, it was at the, toward the end of his life, it was kind of sad. It was like a scene from a movie where the were sort of beaten down lifetime entertainers just, you know, smoking and saying, what do you want to know, kid? It was kind of like that.
0: I I'm a huge Norm Macdonald fan. I've watched uh, a lot of Rodney's specials. It just seemed like he was a, he was never happy. He really didn't think he got respect even though he got tons of respect, but he just it was a very depressed, which is weird about these comedians, you know. They're so funny. People Robin Williams uh and and in, in the end they're just not real happy at the end. It's weird. I
1: I think um I think a lot of them would say I mean, it's a very common. It's so common that theme with comedians. I think a lot of them would say is that this sort of comedy is a search for attention or a search for approval, and that's something in their life, you know, needs that. And I guess we all have that to a certain degree. I want people to read my books. And you want people listening to podcasts and blah 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 blah. But I think comedians is a real, oftentimes not always, like a genuine sadness behind the laughs. And if you look closely or you talk to, I've interviewed a ton of comedians over the years, and they all share a little bit of sort of there's a darkness behind them. Um, like you said, you saw it with Rodney Dangerfield. You saw it with Robin Williams. Um, a lot of guys where you, you definitely see it. Eddie Murphy. So.
0: I'm, and I, I know you do probably a million podcasts, and most people say, all right, tell me the John Rocker story. I have to ask it. So John Rocker, I think everybody remembers, the Braves pitcher, uh, goes crazy, is a nut, kind of a nut, and has this weird relationship with New York people. So you... I guess tell me the genesis of kind of getting agreeing, getting him to agree to, to ride the subway with him, and then he just starts going on tirades that got him in trouble and basically blackballed from baseball.
1: Yeah, that's not actually what happened though. I, I never rode the subway with him. Okay, happened, I thought so. you did. Sorry. It's okay. I um, uh, basically I wrote a profile for, him for Sports Illustrated during the 1999 NFCs yes, between the Braves and the Mets, and um, and the story never ran. It was a it was a pretty generic profile. I had to write it really quick. They wanted it. Uh, During the Major League playoffs, the Braves made the uh, World Series. They got swept by the Yankees, and this profile I wrote never ran. And it was like me getting 20 minutes of Rocker here, 10 minutes there. It wasn't very good. Well, the season ends, the story never runs. And my editor, uh, Dick Friedman, says, why don't you go down to Georgia and try to spend some time with Rocker and freshen up the story? So I called his agent, and he was like, yeah, come on down. You're going to love him. And uh, I flew down to Atlanta. I drove around with them, I knew I was in trouble um, when we were driving and uh, the toll booth wouldn't go up. We, we reached the toll booth and the thing wouldn't go up. He threw money in, the basket didn't go up, he spit on the toll booth. Then the person behind him started honking and he rolled down his window, gave him the middle finger and told him, you know, F you. Um, he was a really grotesque human being as far as like his views on race. Ethnicity and etc. I mean, he's just not a likable human being, but as a journalist, even a New York liberal Jewish guy, your job is, is not to argue, debate, even pass judgment. Your job is to listen. And I think if, if people read that story, which is still available online, uh, there's no judgment in that story. It's John Rocker being John Rocker and presenting John Rocker as John Rocker. Um, it's funny now. I had a friend of mine uh, say this recently, and it's true. By comparison, to what Trump says, what John Rocker said back then is nothing. I don't think anything would happen to him. I don't really I don't mean that. Like whatever compared to Donald Trump has said about people, Rocker, who is a Trump supporter, actually would just fit right in and sound like, a, you know, some of the stuff you see at those, those rallies that he had, Rocker's words would be very sort of accommodating to, to those takes. So it was a different time period. Uh, but it, yeah, it was not my favorite experience in my life just because. You want to be known for, for quality writing and reporting. You don't want to be a part of the story. And in, in the aftermath, I really became a part of the story.
0: Uh, sometimes you, th- I mean, did he, first of all, did he ever get back to you and say, hey, man, that was, you no, know, okay. Because I was going to say, maybe the only thing I could think oh, was he he was putting it on for you, you know, maybe no, he's...
1: No, no, he, he, um There was one moment when I, uh, uh, the next so he'd been suspended and fined and he came back. And I had to go to Atlanta to work on some story. And Rocker saw me for the first time and he lit into me hardcore. So uh, he was not
0: happy about it. Nice guy. Well, he didn't didn't he did, not did, did not stick around much longer. Um, no. So I think we've kind of run through the book. I guess Brett, you did a Brett Favre book, a Walter Payton book. So again, Favre, a guy that has um, you know a lot of skeletons. Um, I guess if you had any stories about that book, I, I could ask you now. It's called Gunslinger. Um, again, another guy that reminds me of Roger Clemens. You know, just sort of. No,
1: not
0: even I was gonna say. I was gonna. Totally I was gonna. I should have. Because his on-the-field stuff is not the same as Roger. I, I guess I, that's a bad comparison. Strike yeah, that from the record.
1: <laughs> that's okay. Um, Favre, was, um, Favre didn't talk for the book. His entire family did. It's the first time i ever had that happen, where um, the main subject wouldn't talk, but the family members would. And I actually I flew down to Mississippi, where he's from, to the kill in Mississippi, his hometown, and met with his his sister and his mom. And then I met with his brothers and nephews and... Uh, they sent me home with scrapbooks, you know, and he wouldn't talk. I had three interviews arranged. They so kept getting blown off. Again, I don't, I don't, I don't blame someone for not talking. It's not, it's, you know, he doesn't owe it to me, and he's not making money off of it. I um, I just think he's a really interesting guy. I think Favre's a really interesting guy. I mean, Favre, people forget, Favre, Favre went to Southern Miss because no one was recruiting him. I mean, nobody was recruiting him, and he was brought into Southern Miss because maybe he could play linebacker because he had good size. No, he was that he never threw in high school. He played for his dad in high school. and He never threw the ball. And uh he shows up at Southern Miss and there're no expectations. None. I and mean, he's I think he's a fifth quarterback in the depth chart. And uh but then they see him in practice and you can hear people keep saying kept telling me they could hear the ball when he threw it. Like you would hear it coming to you. Um, and the first game of his freshman year they're playing at uh Tulane and nothing's going on. Starting quarterback Eric Young is terrible. Favre was out the night before he drank. He shared a case and a half of Schlitz with his roommate, and um, because he knows he's not going to play at halftime, the coach is like, "Why don't we put Favre in?" Put Favre in. He, he wins a game for Southern Miss, and he starts from there on out. But he—it's re- not like nowadays where everyone is known and every high school kid is on the radar. Nobody knew about Brett Favre. Nobody.
0: I'll have to check that out. I'll. And now I'm. You've got. You've sold me on another book. Uh, but the, again, I'm going back to uh, where we started. Uh, Football for a Buck is the book that you just wrote, and I know that you're very proud of it. Um, t- and I guess the title—I don't know if you want to give away the ending—but uh, you call it Football for a Buck, and, and there's a reason for that. Do you want to do you want to divulge that now, or have people read the yeah, ending? No,
1: no, no. I, I keep no secrets. I, um, the the USFL ended up suing the NFL in this huge lawsuit, and um, they ended up winning a dollar. The USFL, and that was the death of the league. That was Donald Trump led lawsuit. So uh, football for a buck is because they want They were worth a dollar basically. So, That's all it is. Yeah.
0: Do you would you compare that league? Because I know there's airplane airplane brawls and and players punching coaches. A lot of people love the ABA and and kind of that what it was. Is this akin to that? Because you have the stars that come from the, the USFL to the the NFL. The ABA had all these big names that went obviously to the NBA when they the, the, the diluted the teams down to the to the ABA not having anything left. Is that, is that a good comparison the those two leagues?
1: Yeah, very. There was a great book about the ABA called, um, loose balls by Terry Pluto. And, um, and, uh, it's, yeah, I mean, that book was when I, I read loose balls not that long ago. And there are tons of similarities. I actually had to work to make sure the book was not loose balls too, that I wanted it to be its own sort of entity. Um, but yeah, I mean, Two fun leagues, two upstarts, two leagues taking on bigger leagues, two leagues with a lot of drugs and drinking and just wildness and guys on the fringe who are getting a chance to play pro. Yeah, it's great. Um, and I loved
0: it. So you had a lot of fun, right? You told us earlier that this you know, this league is more – You know, as a kid, you just loved it. It sounds like you had a lot of fun kind of just – like like you said in, on Twitter. I follow you on Twitter and you just said, hey, I, this is a passion play. I'll talk to anybody who wants to. And, I, and like I said, I've read a few of your books, so I was interested – but you really just wanted to just do this for, for fun, right? I mean, I mean, obviously it's work because you're writing a well, book and you're. I,
1: I want to do it because I believed in, that it would be a good book. I mean, I really, I really believed it would be a good book. And um, you know, sometimes you just do one. A lot of times you do books. I mean, I've always every book I've written, I've been happy to do it. and excited to do. But this one was a real passion project, so I just you know I put everything into it, I put everything into promoting it. Uh, I feel good about it.
0: So I don't know if you want to tell us what you're working on now, but uh, I, I believe you're right at the at the athletic, right? Is it?
1: Yeah, every now that. But I'm working on a uh, working on a book about the Lakers of '96 to so the Shaq Kobe years. That's my new project.
0: So that'll that'll keep you busy for the next couple years, I guess. I hope so. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, is this is this is kind of what what you do, right? You write books. You're a, you're a book writer, along with the athletic, and some of the you do some freelance stuff. But I mean, is this? God, it sounds like the greatest career ever, that you just kind of pick a project and you got a good, uh, you know, obviously a great reputation and, and publishers like it. This seems like, what a, what a fun job, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's my, um, it was my dream, uh, it was my dream career. So, you know, I, uh, yeah, it's great. It is great. And I get to raise my kids and I'm around, um, you know, I'm around, you know, to with my wife and my kids and it's the best. It's great. It is great. I cannot complain.
0: Well, I appreciate your time. I'm going to keep in touch because I just want to do one with you where we just talk about the 1986 Mets. How about that? so maybe a couple couple 6 months we'll check on this uh, Lakers book and then we'll uh, we'll talk more about those 86 87 Mets cuz right, they're fun, man. Thank you for your time, Jeff. My thanks to Jeff Perlman for being a guest here on here's the pitch great books great stories and i uh, hope you enjoyed that and i hope you enjoy my title sponsor masses restaurants five locations in st louis no cal- cannelloni no baloney in the cannelloni i'll get it right one of these weeks and uh yeah that's uh, my title sponsor STLMasses.com. that's where you go in st louis if you listen abroad if you listen in other cities you're driving through find them go to them. There's five locations in St. Louis and it's delicious. Italian fare, low prices, great atmosphere, beautiful portions. I love Mass's restaurants and I love them for being my title sponsor. Once again, I appreciate you listening to Here's the Pitch and more big names, big fun in 2019. Lots of interviews with different people from different walks of life. That's what this show will be from here on out. Hopefully you're enjoying it. Like my friend Jeff, who listens a lot, and says, hey, make sure you mention that you have a lot of listeners. Don't go around saying you only have five to six listeners. Pump this thing up. It's true. I see the stats. I was shocked the other day. I looked to see the Benjamin Hockman one, the last one I did before I went on a little hiatus. That was the highest listened to one because people love their Cardinal baseball. So you can expect a lot of Cardinal baseball talk here coming up on Here's the Pitch, along with everything else that's going on in the world in 2019. And remember to subscribe to my YouTube channel, ST Weekly. Just type in ST Weekly, put that in the search button, you'll find it. Hit subscribe, you're done. That's all you got to do. You don't have to watch anything, you don't have to sign up for anything. That's going to do it for Here's the Pitch. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.